Welcome once again to Wisdom of the Elders. I'm Ron Alesco, and I'm here with series creator Sunny Oaks. Uh, this is a project that is sponsored by the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, NERFA, and Folk Music Notebook, a little internet radio station I happen to be involved with. And we are continuing the tradition that Sunny began back in, was it 2010 at NERFA, where you gathered three individuals together to get their wisdom and discuss their their history and, and find out some connections. And Sonny, I think you picked three artists this week that are may not know each other, but they do have a very similar work ethic and a reason for their music. That's correct. They are all activists. And that to me is the, the definition of the most important people in our world, the people who get out there and try to do something to get rid of the craziness that we're involved in. Today, we're going to talk with Maury Mulharan, who is from Australia and has been very active with the teachers union. He was a teacher for many, many years, but that was that's, that's his vocation. But his avocation is being with people and music. Oh, he has so much involvement with music. And then we have Martin Joseph from Wales, and Martin is just one of the most amazing people, which you will find out when you hear my interview of him. But I'm going to leave you in suspense for now. And finally, Sharon Katz, who started out in South Africa, now basically resides in Mexico and has done so much over the years in both of those places. And you're going to hear about that as well. So I think it's time to get going. Ron Alesco. Bless you for being with us because you are you're the rock that keeps me on on track. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Sonny. It's always an honor to do this, and it's it's an honor to be with these three individuals. And it's also a technological feat too, since we're we're dealing with three different countries and some really wide ranging time zones. And we're going to begin with with Moray, who's in I think near Sydney, Australia, which is about fourteen hours ahead of us here in the states. Fourteen hours so ahead. <laughs> I'm glad someone could do the maths of the of the time zones because we started to tie ourselves up in knots, or I did at least. Right. Well, it's, it's also when you, throw, when you throw in daylight savings time, it really gets confusing. Oh, my God. <laughs> but we're glad you could be with us. I know it's very early, so we decided we we're going to start with you and 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 just looking over your your career. We're going to talk about music, but you were also a teacher and a principal for over 34 years in public high schools in both rural, regional, and, and, and metropolitan New South Wales in Australia. You also served as the president of the New South Wales Teacher Federation. You were deputy federal president of the Australian Education Union. And you also represented public school teachers on the New South Wales Education Standards Authority Quality Teaching Council. And you were appointed director of the Center for Public Education Research. And when it comes to music, you've been involved with folk music since you first saw Pete Seeger in concert back in 1968 in uh, Sydney. You also created a, a two-hour musical biography of Pete. And I know right before COVID, you were working on a tribute to Phil Oakes. And I believe you, you bring music into your work as well. I've seen a number of videos and, and such on your, <laughs> your Facebook page where you know, you're out there singing in front of picket lines and, and getting everybody involved. How did that involvement with folk music develop? Well, it, it, it happened through my parents. My parents introduced me to the music of, that they loved, which was Paul Robeson and the Weavers in, in particular. Irish rebel songs. I come from an Irish family and background. So that was, it was always on continuous play in our house of a weekend with the very loudly Irish rebel songs or the, the Dubliners or Makem and Clancy and others. So, and of course, Australian folk music, which there's a strong tradition of Bush music, Australian folk music, and that was introduced. So I was lucky enough to have parents who introduced me to that form of music and I've loved it ever since. And mm -hmm. Pete Seeger was, of course, just one person who was it was extraordinarily influential right right from as a child when I used to hear his records. And he kind of, if you like, gave permission to work politically and also play music that the, the two were kind of connected. You know, it's if music alone uh, could only bring peace, I'd only be a musician. It was, you know, that, 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 that wonderful set of lyrics that he wrote about 
that. I, so that's my introduction to, to folk music. And your involvement in teaching as your vocation, how did that develop? Well, I I kind of have thought teaching is probably one of the few professions where you, where the state pays you to undermine it. And the, the notion that you could become a teacher and use your teaching you know, to it's some kind of transformational thing with young people. I, I saw teaching as quite a kind of subversive activity in many ways that you you're challenging children and young people to to think critically, to engage with their world, to be articulate, to be able to write, to be able to read widely. That to me was a really important role in teaching, and in a sense, teaching. For the future, you know, and you see young people as being your future or the world's future, then having a role in making them connect to that world is very powerful. So I was very much attracted to teaching in that respect. Mm-hmm. Did Did you bring music into the classroom? Um, oh, I did. I did. I I I wrote I wrote musicals for kids to perform because I was I was sick of kids just trying to reach the high notes in <laughs> Oklahoma or South Pacific or Oliver <laughs> and that. So my friend and I decided to write musicals with a with a with a lower with a with a smaller voice vocal range for ensemble. So we used to have we put on musicals with sometimes 150 200 kids in it because we were too. We never rejected kids who auditioned, so we made space for them on the stage. But so. We, we did that and, of course, yeah, taking the guitar, the banjo into the classroom and if I was teaching a history class on Vietnam, well, it's, it's hard to go past Fixing the Die Rag or other songs like that and 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 do that live. And, of course, also play with kids, you know, get them to, to bring their instruments to school and be engaged in music. I think music's a critically important part of a, a young person's education and we should and it's unfortunately in my country there's not enough funding there's not enough music programs the arts is under attack through standardized testing and so we're trying to we're trying to combat that in a way and 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 make the curriculum more more broader for, for young people and music education is one of the things i'm currently trying to develop a campaign around protecting and supporting it, it sounds like that's a universal issue i know we have the same problem here in the states i my own kids when they went to school their musical education was so much different than mine when i grew up Mm -hmm. in the 60s and were singing these songs do do you find students cynical with music you know everybody has their own taste every generation and you're you're bringing a lot of music from the 1960s into the classrooms was it hard to 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 reach them through the through songs I I was probably more nervous singing with singing in front of kids than than an adult audience because they they're very honest. Children are very honest, and particularly your teenagers you're teaching. Are, but I've never once you do it, they they really take to it. They love the notion of hearing instruments live in in their classroom for kids in some of the disadvantaged schools that i taught in in western sydney you know i may have been the first live musician that they'd ever seen mm-hmm. perform and they were 14 and 15 they'd never been to a concert they'd never been taken to anywhere where people performed so so me bringing a, a banjo or a guitar or a mandolin into class or with another couple of teachers, we we used to often form rock bands in schools and and play for the kids at at dances. We were sometimes the first musicians that those kids had seen perform live in front of them. Did you bring in a lot of music from Australia? I mean, I honestly don't have a a deep background in Australian folk music. Sure, uh, but is there its own indigenous cultures that we would involve in in the music as well? Oh sure, there was. There's there's a lot of Australian folk songs that help support our history. So, for instance, you may have heard the expression "bush rangers," mm-hmm. which were the kind of highwaymen of of Australia who would ambush stagecoaches and and rob them and rob banks. And there's a lot of folklore and folk myths about these people who they're kind of like Pretty Boy Floyd, the Woody Guthrie song. They were the heroes of poorer people. They're often from an Irish Catholic background or escaped convicts. And there's some great material and songs 
about their lives that make the history lesson come alive when you say, well, actually, you've learned about what's happened. Now, let's, there's a song actually written during that time that says, that says something about what people thought of these outlaws, these bushrangers. So, yeah, uh, the Australian folk songs were important. You also created this two-hour uh, musical biography of Pete Seeger that you brought to Australia, and uh, I know it played to many theatres and folk festivals all across Australia. How did that develop? And, and also, the second part of the question is, how did audiences react? Pete Seeger is a household name here in the U.S. Yes, I, I imagine he probably is around the world as well. Uh, but how, how was that received by Australian audiences? Well, very well. We I, I we were going up to the Woodford Folk Festival, which is one of the largest folk festivals in the world. And Martin and Sharon, I'm not sure if you know Woodford Folk Festival, but it's it gets mm-hmm. Sonny's been to it. That's where I met Sonny at the Woodford Folk Festival up in Queensland. And we wanted to take a show up. So I developed a a very short workshop version of a history of Pete Seeger. He has influence as as not just on American folk music. He he's he's fig he he transcends borders, of course. And I was concerned that people were forgetting that there's a tradition that goes back. It's not just the current crop of musicians who are making political statements, but this is a tradition that goes way back. And here's one example of a fairly important person. And I did that, and one thing led to another, and Harold Leventhal in New York found out about it and and rang me in the middle of the night about 1.30 in the morning and I think he might have thought that I was some huge commercial producer that was putting on a multi-million dollar show about Pete Seeger and <laughs> and he was protecting Pete's interest so he rang me to find out what, what was happening and this is in the mid-90s and we got talking and I sent the script over to to pete to have a look at and pete got his red pen out (laughs) literally got his red pen out and pete went through the script from one one end to the other and and in pete style you know no 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 too melodramatic cut this piece out need to explain it in more detail no time here no time and kind of so and then he's made the incredible comment too much of me not enough (laughs) of other people and 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 women and i I did remember remarking to him that it's pretty hard not to do a show about Pete Seeger and have Pete Seeger as a <laughs> fairly prominent person in the show. So I then decided that, and we got such an extraordinary reaction at the Woodford Folk Festival that I decided to turn it into a theatre piece. So I took leave from teaching and spent quite a long time. Pete had sent out all this resource material. This is kind of pre-internet. And I rewrote the show completely uh, into a two-act, two-and-a-half-hour musical biography. And we then put it on in Sydney at one of the theatres. We ran it for a month. We had sold-out audiences every night. And the last night, it was there were so many people trying to get into the show that we had to break fire regulations. We had people sitting in the corridor. We actually... In the end, up having to put people, create an, an additional front row in front of the real front row, and the reaction was was just fantastic. And we've done it a couple of other, few other times in different places. But you know, in answer to your question, it was very well received. In fact, I only did a gig the other night, and people came up to me and asked me when the ne- when it was coming on again, <laughs> as oh. though we could keep just doing it at the drop of a hat. Oh well, I hope someday you might bring it to the United States so we could get. Well, it'd be like thing. bringing coals to Newcastle, as they as they True. say. <laughs> but no, I I I I think that'd be lovely to 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 do it in in Pete's his own country to to his, his to his own folks. Yeah, and, and you performed in the U.S., weren't you? At one of the Clearwater festivals, if I'm not mistaken, the COVID festival where they did it through the virtual festival. Yes, ah. uh, I did. I I was asked to do some songs so i made a contribution that way well we hope to get to see you a little more frequently here in the u.s and in person one of these days <laughs> that'd be lovely ron that'd be uh, lovely well thanks maury maury malheron and let's move on now sunny you have our next guest 
I have a very interesting guest here. This guest is this year is celebrating 40 years in the folk music business. His name is Martin Joseph. He was born and lives in Wales, and he's my kind of musician. He's a social protester, and he, when he sees things that he thinks are wrong, he does something about it, and I, I admire him for that. We met at International Folk Alliance International, and we've gotten to know each other quite well, and I'll go into that stuff in a minute. But I want to go back, uh, Martin, to the beginning. When I looked at your biography, one word popped up from your youth, and that word was golf. <laughs> yeah, I, that's right. My, I, my, my real goal when I was a kid was I, I wanted Jack Nicholas was my hero, and I and my dad joined me at the local golf club when I was ten years old, and I got pretty good fairly early on, and that's. Uh, that yeah, music was just a, something I did on the side at that point, and obviously I wasn't good enough. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you now. <laughs> and so that, but yeah, that was my I, my dad passed away last year. We played golf together for uh, forty five years, fifty years together, you know. And I miss him. So that that was our glue, you know, the the, the sport because he was a very successful sportsman. And uh, I did, I did get good at golf, and and uh, you know got got down to scratch on us, but sixteen. But uh, I wasn't good enough. You got to be way better than that. So yeah, that's that. I still play that. Yeah. And how did music come into your life? Well, my my, I'd, I'd always always loved music, and I'd asked Dad if I could have a, a guitar for Christmas one year when I was ten years old, and so he he very kindly did that and got me some lessons, uh, classical stuff and yeah so i you know as i said the sport was big for me at that point but i always listen to music my my early influences elvis i loved glenn campbell in the, in the early 70s i was buying you know i love wichita lyman the songwriting of jimmy webb springsteen became a huge influence so i, I was really drawn to to north american music where you you tend to wear your hearts on your sleeve a little bit more than us sort of uh, uptight brits you know so I, I i enjoyed the emotion of that sometimes it gets a bit sickly with that country music but for the most part you know I, so uh so yeah music you know from a very young age too yeah so you started being a musician officially yeah. in 1983 yeah. and then in 1999 you started your own label your own record company it was a bit earlier than that, actually, Sonny. I, I I was signed to CBS Records in the early '90s, and uh, I did two albums with them, and had some little bit of chart success, and you know, touring with some pretty big stars and all that sort of stuff. But I had a by the they dropped me after two albums, and uh, but I had a, a pretty decent following. But the the internet was just coming on board in those days, and I realized that it was something I could take control of, and I could write about what I wanted to write up instead of someone trying to create a hit record or whatever it might be so i formed my own little label and primarily i've done it that way ever since just independent and uh, yeah i'm in my studio right now this is where i'm, I'm mixing a, a new album now it might be my 34th studio album so uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh it's a lot of work i wouldn't want you to hear all of it to be honest you get better as you you move forward but uh, so yeah i've been independent and blessed to to be able to do it for most of my life so far and you actually, you put out an album which of, of just songs by Bruce Springsteen. Is that correct? I did. That was, I was prompted by a guy called Dave Marsh, who is, was a renowned journalist in the States and is married to one of Bruce's managers. And I went on Bruce's 24-hour serious, what's it called, that, that thing. And Dave was interviewing me and he knows Bruce pretty well. And off air, he told me that Bruce really liked the covers of his songs that I did. So that took me aback. And he said, so if you ever want to do a, a covers album, I'd be gladly write the, uh, the sleeve notes. And he kept his promise. So uh, yeah, I, I had a go. But I also did one of your, uh, your brother too, which is probably the one I'm most proud of, of uh, those two. Days of Decision. I, yeah. I happen to have a copy of it. <laughs> is that right? Well, you're on it too. 
It's a lovely story because I, I was opening for the Irish band Clannad in Boston in 1993, and I got a very nice review from the Boston Club saying that it was a profound experience. I thought I must have paid the guy dollars or something, but and he said that I was quite Phil Oaks-ish, and I thought that's great. Who's Phil Oaks? I didn't know, you know. So I look him up, love it, embrace the music, and then, gosh, how many years later did we meet at Folk Alliance? Where I rather flippantly say, when I saw your badge, I don't suppose you're related to Phil, and you said yes, I'm his sister, and it went from there. So and you kindly asked if I would, you know, consider doing an album of his songs, and and I'm glad I did it. It's, you know, it's, it's just wonderful stuff. It's be- beautiful. Yeah. I think Phil was, uh, you know, in that time where people were talking about protest music, he was the one who who sailed, the, flew the flag, along with Pete Seeger, of course, but in that sort of more of a mainstream, although Pete was mainstream too, but but Phil didn't waver, you know, he didn't sort of try to be commercial or whatever that much and, and continue to, to sing on behalf of, of the broken and the disenfranchised. Well, your versions of his songs are beautiful. They're very oh, cut to you. the bone. There's no fancy stuff going on. It's just right, <laughs> right there. And I, I just really appreciate that you did that CD. I've seen you perform. You, you, you have something special. You don't sound like any of the other performers. I, I can't put my finger on it, but I don't know if it's your presentation, what it is, but you, you just stand out. I really admire you. Thank you. Yeah, I want to ask you something I really want to talk to you about, because this mm-hmm. is where we tie in with our other guys here on the on the conference. You created something in 2014 called Let Yourself Trust. Could yeah. you please talk about that? I'd be delighted to. Yeah, my wife and I just, I, I just wanted to get my hands dirty. I just wanted to get involved rather than just singing about it. I wanted to do practical stuff. So we formed this organization that runs alongside my music and we're quite unique. We only work with small grassroots organizations. A lot of big organizations are doing great work. We let them get on with it. But I, have a, as I've toured you know, through the years, people have come up to me and say, look, we're doing this over here. And I've gone to visit and tried to support. And I thought, well, I'd really like to get more involved. I went to play a festival in the West Bank in Palestine, and I was so broken by the the sight of what I saw there. I, mean, I, I stayed on for nine days, and I found a guy who ran a children's theater in, in, in one of the refugee camps there, and I thought, well, I'd love to support him. So I talked about this work for six months, raised some money, and gave it to him. And we thought, well, that really works. So we, what we do is we change project every six months. We only work, as I said, with small organizations, but we're open to anybody you know, and everything. We're working in Uganda. We're working in, in Britain with uh, mental health. We've been working in Greece with refugees. We've worked in Canada with an indigenous tribe whose river was poisoned. And, and we just give them publicity from stages for six months. And at the end of the six months, we give them a sum of money and we move on. So we bring, we're building up this beautiful portfolio of hope. Uh, so when people pick up the pamphlet now, we've been going for eight years, so there's 16 projects in there. And it, it, there's no charity fatigue because we, we, we vary it so much. And I've never, we've never got a grant off anybody. And just through my own audience, we've now given away over three quarters of a million dollars across those 16 projects which is an extraordinary thing and I, it, it amazes me so and i we, i just came back from west bank palestine again we took 30 people there for uh, nine days to show them the reality of life on the ground there so we're able to do these volunteer trips and um, every night every gig i do i just highlight the specific cause that we're dealing with in that six months and it's just been an incredible thing and i'm amazed we never thought it could be what it is but uh it, it's just growing and we've got a board of directors we we i don't make the decisions about who we support they do and it's it's a beautiful thing yeah let yourself trust so you're as busy as ever you're still yeah how did the pandemic affect you do you know what <clears throat> this sounds awful but you know I've always said if I could get six months off the road, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> be careful what you wish for. And whereas I appreciate, of course, the hardships for many people, I found that it for me it was actually a kind of a needed stop point, you know, a rest. I did online stuff from this room, but I, I only did one every every one and a half months or two, you know, that sort of thing. I didn't do like some people do them all the time. And and we, I was getting, you know, 1500 screens every one I did just because I think I pasted a little bit, you know, globally. So that was good, but it gave me uh, time to just stop. And I wrote a, a an album, reflected a bit more and 
So in that sense, for me, it was uh, a decent thing. But of course, I recognize the, the dreadful hardship that it's brought on on the world. And I'm not, I'm not being flippant, mm -hmm. but for me personally, mm -hmm. it was it was a bit of a respite. You know. And your new album is called 1960. No, no, that's the old. That was the one I wrote during uh, lockdown. That's that's been out about uh, yeah two years now. So I'm actually literally I've just stopped to, to do this because I'm mixing a new one here, which is going to be called "This Is What I Want to Say," and that's coming out in January. Oh, that's yeah. a good title. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Very yeah, it's kind of Phil Oaks's, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> All righty. Well, do you have anything you want to add that I didn't? No, ask? I'm. I, no, I'm just happy to answer questions, but I'm, you know, I'm happy to be here with Murray and Sharon and Ron and yourself today and uh, to okay, well, speak about people. speak about these things. And uh, thank you for, for asking me and thank you for your very kind words. Thank you for being you, Martin. <laughs> All right, back to you. Uh... Thank you. And Martin, we're really looking forward to that new album. So don't forget to send us a copy when no, it comes sure. out. I promise. Uh, well, well, speaking of new albums, uh, our, our next guest has a delightful, powerful new album out called For You. It's Sharon Katz and the Peace Train. And Sharon is with us today. Sharon, it's, it's always so good to see you. And it's always so good when you have a new recording to come out and uh, for us to play on the radio. <laughs> Your history goes back to uh, South Africa, where you were born. Uh, you were born in apartheid South Africa during a time when it was well, it was difficult. You had to sneak into the the black townships to hear music, and that that could have been a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah, hi Ron, and and hi everybody, and 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 thank you, Sunny, for inviting me to be a part of this wisdom of the elders. It's an honor, really an honor. But yeah, I, I, you know, to answer you, Ron, uh, I'm excited about the new album. I, I feel like it, it reflects a lot of parts of me at this particular point in time. And there's a very strong South African influence on the album, for sure, mm -hmm. because I recorded with two choirs in South Africa. And there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot in this album that's about my, my heart and soul, South Africa. But yeah, I was, I was born into the apartheid era. And it was illegal to go to a, a black township when I was growing up. I didn't only go to listen to music. I, I went because I, I made it sure that I could go to a, a township and, and visit townships because I wanted to visit my friends there. I wanted to understand what was going on, how they were living, because we were separated. And it, you know, it, it took a lot of effort to go there, but I, I, I was... I was really fortunate to meet a group of black actors, namely John Carney, who's world famous today. People have seen him in Black Panther, but I know mm -hmm. from when he was acting with Ethel Fugard, who came from a world-renowned um, playwright from near my hometown, Port Elizabeth. And um, I was fortunate to be present at a underground, literally, illegal performance of um, a play that was being acted when I, I was about 14, 15 years old. And um, John was was the spearheading this production. And I became friends with him after the show and made arrangements to meet him and the other actors in secret. And they would take me out to, to New Brighton Township and hide me under blankets at the back of the car. But because these grown individuals would be asked to show a pass. They're called in South Africa, Dom Pass, to show to the police as they left the area of Port Elizabeth, a whites only area, and had to go to their township, a checkpoint, much like you see on the West Bank and in um, Israel, Palestine. I was listening to Martin and feeling it so deeply, mm -hmm. but I had to go, you know, that's how I had to enter the township. And then when we would get to New Brighton, I would find nothing but love and compassion and appreciation from the community for the fact that I, I was there in the first place. And I was really young. I, I just wanted to be there. I wanted to visit. I wanted to go home and um, to the, my friends' homes. And equally, I would invite them to come to my home, my friends John and Winston, Nomkle and V, v. and um, that was illegal too, to entertain a black person in your white home 
Wow. We weren't allowed to do that. So I went on from there, you know, to to really wait as we all did for the release of Nelson Mandela, because all these years Mandela was in jail. And when he was finally released, Mandela, that's when I had the opportunity to join with my colleagues, Marilyn, who was from Philadelphia, United States. And we met up with Nontrantla Wanda in Durban, South Africa, and we founded in 1992 the Peace Train Project. And yeah. that was, we, we raised the 500 Voice Children's Choir to celebrate really being able to be together being able to herald in the new south africa um, a new democratic and non-racial south africa so i've been on that journey for 30 plus years with the peace train but it mm -hmm. does as you 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 know you asked me the question i had it's a rather long answer but uh, <laughs> no, it's it's a perfect answer and and that was really the first multicultural choir from what I believe in, in South Africa. As far um, as I know, it definitely was because you weren't allowed to meet interracially in South Africa until around about that time when we staged this huge, huge production in Durban, Durban, South Africa. And it was, we called it When Voices Meet, because the whole idea was that when voices meet, when people come together to sing, as Mari was also saying, you know, about bringing people together with music. We've all been doing that, Martin, as well. And Pete Seeger and everybody, you know, the, the whole idea is that you can't hate somebody when you're standing next to them and singing. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you're literally rubbing shoulders. And we would do that. We would actually make, you know, tell the children to touch, make sure that they were touching another person's shoulders because you can feel the vibrations. And we would literally go and... You know, we would mix things up. Um, I was lucky because I could speak many different languages of South Africa. And um, we would say we, we need to mix things up literally here. And we would make sure that black children were touching white children's shoulders and we would dance and sing together. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Really music, amazing. And we had an incredibly mixed audience. It reminded me when Maury um, was talking about breaking the fire marshal's regulations. You know? <laughs> we had to do that in South Africa when voices meet because people were lining the blocks trying to get into the city hall in Durban. The word just spread. Yeah. And we had every single political party was represented as well. And this was before the elections in South Africa before the first democratic elections of 1994. This was December 1993, actually May 1993 were the concerts in Durban. And then we, we knew that we had to take the message around the country. And so we, we set about raising funds to hire a train. And that was when we hired a 14 coaches long train and we traveled with 150 members of the choir. And at that point, my friends, Ladysmith Black Mambazo, came on board with, with Joseph Shabalala at the, at the lead, of course. And we had this amazing tour. It was groundbreaking tour for two weeks, traveling by train or all around South Africa. And, and it was very grassroots. You know, we put up the set stage and the sound and everything ourselves. It, we, we got it all sponsored. We never charged a cent for any concert because it was what the country needed to see. Hmm. And we came from home from that tour. We were flat broke. I mean, you know, we, we maxed out our credit cards and took 10 years to pay off the Peace Train project because we, we continued with this project for a decade in South Africa before we basically ran out of money and, and yeah. had to work elsewhere and ended up going back to the United States to yeah, try to work and pay off. <laughs> There's also a brilliant documentary about your music and your humanitarian work with the priest train called When Voices Meet came out in 2015. And our audience, I hope we'll, we'll check that out too, to discover more about this amazing job that you've done in South Africa and and also here in the U.S. I mean, you came to the U.S. Initially, you first came, you were a student, uh, I believe, learning music therapy before you really took on the role of, of, of music as a performer and activist. But since then, you've been doing work 
not only here in the U.S. and South Africa, but also in Cuba and uh, now in Mexico. Tell us about, about that work. Well, just I will. And, and and thank you, Ron, for the question. But just going back for a second to When Voices Meet, you know, we it took us 20 years to make a documentary. Fortunately, I, I, I saved all this footage on all these different formats. And we were lucky enough to meet an editor who put it all together. And our fans and friends, including Sunny, you know, helped us to make this documentary. It, it was never in our thoughts to 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 just do a project and make a documentary. So it was wonderful because 20 years later, you can get a story out of participants. It, it was beautifully woven together with the interviews after 20 years. And it's available for free on, on, on YouTube. So it's called When. We took the name of the original production and used it for the documentary. It's called When Voices Meet. Um, it's, it's been very successful, the, the documentary. It got a lot mm -hmm. of awards because it's, it's just a beautiful and authentic story. Uh, but coming back to the present um, time, we've been busy in Mexico. We were invited to work in the hills of Tijuana, the, a border town on the border of the United States. It borders San Diego. So it comes right to the border, San Diego, right at the border. It's, it, it's then Tijuana, Mexico. And we had a, an incredible five-year project that we we worked on there, working with children that don't have music in their lives because there's no money to support music in the schools. And we partnered with the project and went to all the like 50, 60 schools and then brought them all together in stadiums and performed with a couple thousand children singing. We also had a peace train that we went by train from Tijuana to neighboring towns and to give the children that experience, similar to what we'd had in South Africa. And we brought United States across the border. We brought musicians and followers and friends and to show them, you know, and people, it's it's surprising. It's still surprising to me that they live in San Diego, but they don't visit Tijuana. They're afraid of crime in Tijuana. But, you know, once you break down that stereotype and you actually bring people physically to another place, they realize that, you know, the people are living there, you know, and people are living their lives. It's a beautiful town. The food is amazing. The culture and arts are amazing. And it breaks down stereotypes literally when you bring people to mm -hmm. another culture. So it's been an honor to be on that journey. And we now are... Um, based in in that area on the in the border area and i also had the privilege to work in migrant shelters and these are shelters where that have been created in the community churches and whoever has it in their heart to do this work which is amazing and i've been working as a music therapist in the shelters with people who've done that walk from colombia or from all these different central american countries they walk it's unreal. And some of them don't survive the journey. But those that do survive the journey, they, they, they live in shelters and they go to work in Mexico. They've been held in Mexico without being able to cross the border to join their, sometimes their blood relatives that are waiting for them in the United States. They haven't been able to cross the border. And then I've also worked in shelters for children who've been rescued from child trafficking, sex trafficking, which is the worst, yeah. most heinous crime. And I have one song on the new album that's called La Tristeza that was written, the lyrics were written by a girl who had been rescued from child trafficking. I worked with her for two years. I can't reveal her name on the album, but I wrote the music for La Tristeza. And I just, mm. every time I perform the song, I feel like I'm bringing that issue to light because it's not something that we think about every day. You know, you don't yeah. think what happens to these kids and how are they ever able to get over that kind of trauma? And music is powerful. Music enables people to connect and to express themselves and to to just have another experience. I, I, lo I love the work that Martin and, and Maury have been doing and, and I feel akin to that. We're connected sure. in that because we do the same work. Well, I, I think all three of you are doing such an incredible job through your music. 
involving audiences and, and teaching audiences about issues that you know the media doesn't cover in such a way. So Sharon, thank you for for this for for, for, for the, the new album is called For You, and I think now it's uh, time that we have a little uh, little group discussion, don't you think, Sunny? I would hope so. First of all, I am just so proud to know all three of you. You're just such special people on the planet. Thank you for being you. Do you have any questions for each other? Were you curious about what you heard from one of the other participants? My only query is when are they coming to Australia? And let me know when you do, and we'll <laughs> we'll set up some gigs together. <laughs> uh, Maury, I'd love to come. I I I, I was in Canada, Australia in the eighties, in okay. uh, 80, 85 to eighty eight, but I, I haven't been back since, and I I've never had an invite from any of the uh, folk festivals or anything. Oh, that's so disgraceful. <laughs> if if you know someone, sir, please uh, have a word, and I'll be there, and uh, it'd be great to meet you in person. <laughs> probably <laughs> tomorrow, I will be to both to both to both of you. That's great. Sure, that would be amazing. I, I've often wanted to come to Australia. One of the questions I actually wanted to ask was about the Aboriginal uh, community yes. and yes. and how does, you know, because, well, you know, I come from South Africa, so, you know, how does the, how does Indigenous community feature in the folk music world? Uh, I, I just want to add that I've performed at fest festivals where I've heard this incredible... Didgeridoo. Yeah, didgeridoo. Sorry, I just <laughs> my mind for a second, but there was a... Yes. Group many many years ago and there were like at least three didgeridoos and they were bringing it's so powerful the music so i was just wondering if you are involved with any local groups in that kind of way look the uh, aboriginal um, performers have become i think probably we we could say in the last 20 years become uh very much promoted within folk music um, circles. I think we'd have to admit for a long time it was it was it was you know we we didn't acknowledge the existence of Aboriginal performers, but I think that that's changed significantly in the last few years. And so there's people like Kev Carmody, for instance, who uh, and Archie Roach, Ruby Hunter. There's a whole lot of singer-songwriters from an Aboriginal background who who write songs and they're performed. Bands like Midnight Oil, I'm not sure if you know about Midnight Oil, the Australian rock band, they've been taking, they, they started performing in the desert communities, concerts, and then they started to promote Aboriginal artists as well. So I think it's, it's a lot better than it ever was. At the moment, just very quickly, we, I'm not sure if you can see that sticker, Yes. Uh, vote yes. We have a referendum in Australia that's going to happen in October the fourteenth, and which will give constitutional recognition to Aboriginal people and set up a separate constitutionally recognised voice for Aboriginal people that give advice to uh, Parliament. And to get a constitutional change in Australia is very, very difficult. You've got to get a majority of states and a majority of people in those states. So the threshold is very high. And the Conservatives are doing their best to scuttle it. We just had last weekend hundreds of thousands of people marching in support of the yes vote. And we're hoping, we really hope that that will, will happen. But it's, it's yeah, I think I think in terms of music, they, folk festivals, for instance, ha always have Aboriginal performers now. They do what we call acknowledgement or welcome to country. I'm not sure if that's a, a tradition that's in other places in the world, but we now recognise that we're occupying Aboriginal land wherever we are in Australia. So if there's a folk festival or a performance happening, we start the show by saying, I want to acknowledge, for instance, if it's in Sydney, I'd say, I want to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay respects to the elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this was and always will be Aboriginal land. And that's a kind of recognised way of acknowledging Aboriginal people. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for telling me that. And I know they do that in Canada. And of course, in South Africa, we had the complete changeover, you know, we had a complete change of government. And so, and so it should be because we have a majority of black South Africans and people of color in South Africa. And that's well, was it very, very quickly, Sharon, my, I, 
we had a record in my house when I was very, very young, which always, and it was only at the spoken word, and the spoken word was Nelson Mandela. My parents used to play this record. They bought it as a fundraiser to help the anti-apartheid movement, and it was the recording of of Nelson Mandela on a, on a record that was that they had. So I kind of I'm sure it was banned in South Africa, of course. <laughs> it certainly it was, would have been. It was in jail. What, uh, it was called "Why I'm Willing to Die." You wow. know, from his from his speech in the oh, doc. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, right, right. Amazing, amazing. It's 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 just incredible to be here with all of you. It really is. And I, I just hope that whoever's listening right now to this or whoever will listen to this broadcast will just know that we can each and every one of us do something, you know, to help this this planet and this, as Sandy said, this crazy yes. world, but this damaged world, you know, which continues to be damaged. And you know, know it, it kind of touches on something martin you said when you were talking earlier about being an independent artist and you know you had some commercial success uh early on with a, a major record label uh now you all three of you are, are basically independent artists and you can uh, i don't know if you can do whatever you want but is is it make it easier for you to reach an audience? I mean, you don't all of you do you do others things besides protest, but protest is a part of it, and teaching audiences as well. But do you find it it opens doors or makes it harder for you to to reach an audience through being independent, or are you kind of preaching to the choir? I'll speak to that for a second. I think to some extent we're preaching to the choir. I'm not preaching to the choir what I'm you know, playing in a favela above Rio, uh, or which I've done, and uh, or in, in the West Bank, being sort of locked down by Israeli military, you know, as such, those are moments of tension where you feel you're right in the midst of it. But I guess that people that gather around me are, are, are sympathizers <laughs> with, you know, my feelings and the way I look at things. So in that sense, um, <clears throat> it's a bit of a self-gratifying circle because you know they encourage you you encourage them but you're not reaching beyond that um as as such whereas if you if you're an artist that has a more of a you know a much bigger following then you're going to have the centers but people you might be able to change their minds there's always the odd person uh, at the show that will uh, make it known that they don't agree with me or whatever and that's great but but i think primarily it's to the choir but then the choir needs encouragement too because mm -hmm. The choir can sing out a tune or not want to turn up for a rehearsal <laughs> to carry on with a <laughs> metaphor. And I think often I feel my job is to gather folk together from wherever they've come from. And, and I think the job of music, of art, of poetry, paint is, is, is to somehow let us know that we're not alone, that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And so... As we as we gather at a concert, whatever it might be, a festival, then we remind ourselves of the greater good. We remind ourselves of of, of uh, what our true core values are, and that enables us to go out and hopefully travel a little bit before we get disillusioned, have to turn around and go back and get some more of that, and then go back out again. Because I think music helps to accompany change. Music does not bring about change as such. It's part of an accompaniment to enable people to say, you know, I can do this. And and so that's a long-winded answer to your, your fine question. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Slightly, I feel similarly to, to, to Martin, but I also many times I'm in front of audiences that I know are opposite to what I feel what my sensibility is I mean not to not to generalize but I'm in this I'm in a, in states in the United States right now that are traditionally red states which are very different from my my ethics and sensibilities and I feel that I you know I, I almost have to like I'm on my way to Raleigh right now, Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm being hosted by a church, and I'm going to be I'm going to be working with a lot of church, not only church but community organizations and choirs, and then putting together a show that will be performed on the 30th of September. So I, I don't know who I'm going to encounter, 
but I just try, like all of us, to to put forward the message. And the message in one of our songs is, we can be the change we want. So now people can take that however they want it, but I'm always pushing a non-racial agenda, an anti-racist agenda, an agenda that that's about let's love and respect one another. And those are the lyrics in all of my my songs. And so our, our project is called The Peace Train Transcending Barriers. You know, so I'm telling the stories about Nelson Mandela. So, and I know there are people there that are like just looking like this. You know, they how are we going to change their hearts and minds? So I, I personally don't feel like I'm always preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important, you know, that we just go forth with this because we also have this internet now, you know, that is making huge ripples. You don't know who's going to be listening. So, you know, I believe that music really does change communities. It, it, it's it's really, really intrinsic. And the struggle in South Africa was just propelled by music. It mm-hmm. was it gave people the courage, you know, to to say that they could actually defeat apartheid. It's not that the music defeated apartheid, but the, the music gave people that hope and that and that strength to overcome. So I think we're all talking about the same thing, really. And, you know, we just have to try to push on. And we can't defeat the regimes with the music, but we can just, as, as you're doing, Martin, with your incredible six-month projects, I think that's amazing. And, and, mm. and, and Ari, with what you're doing with... With, with your musicals and Ron and Sunny, I just I just want to say thank you for for giving us the courage, you know, to and the support that I you think, you know to, to, to continue what we're doing. Thank you, Sharon. You made a very good point. I think that music, the kind of music, I think we all love and and support that very broad range of music. At, at the right time, it can nourish the spirit of people who need that kind of boost and just the, the very act. It doesn't even have to be lyrics that are particularly political or particularly powerful in a sense, but just the act of a group of people in a certain point in a certain time singing together can be a very powerful political act uh, in itself. I mean, I've, I've, I've sung on so many picket lines at union meetings, I, I've lost count. And often there are picket lines where people have been out on strike for a long time. And you just, you know, and you might come along late at night and and take out your guitar and start singing some some songs. And they may not necessarily be political songs or union songs, but the very act of, of singing with people and getting them to sing along it can be very powerful. I think music can be that, what I call, nourishing the spirit act to nourish the spirit of people particularly our music i think in a sense because it's pretty portable music you know it doesn't require necessarily a massive setup you know you just break a banjo or a guitar out of a case and don't have to plug anything in and and you can and you can start singing with people definitely music of the people and uh, it's also a great way of making us feel hey we're not alone we're not the only ones that feel Mm, this way true and also, thank you all three, because you give us something to play on the radio. So it keeps me busy. <laughs> I have a question. The pandemic really has made, I think, a major change in the music scene in the United States. I'm finding that talking to people, audiences are smaller. People have gotten so used to watching things online, and that's becoming a whole new world of music. And as well, Martin, you said you... We're doing stuff online just like maybe every month and a half. and there, But there are those who've been doing it weekly, like Vance Gilbert does a weekly pajama party online. And a lot of musicians have gone that way. And people who have clubs, we're finding that our audiences, those of us who are putting on concerts, I'm finding that my audience is shrinking. And Ron, you said yours is too at the... Yep. And I'm wondering what's what's it like over in Australia or in Wales or in England? What's going on? Certainly in Australia, the pandemic, you know, because there was lockdowns that extended lockdowns that went for a long time, 
I think a lot of the commercial venues were under a lot of strain, and I think it's and a lot of musicians really struggled just to make ends meet. But I think I've I I'd have to say from my experience in the last twelve months or so of performing around festivals and folk clubs, they're 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 packed. You know, we're getting audiences back in 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 you know small folk clubs around the place uh, and the festivals are as strong as they've ever been the audiences are now have, have come back so the illawarra folk festival next uh, january near where i live and i think sunny you came to the illawarra folk festival and and we've got i think rick and donna nestler are coming out to it and rick Paleri are coming out to the illawarra folk festival i'm hoping to do a, a concert of, of peace songs with them if they if they'll agree but that festival is still relatively small. It hasn't grown back from the from the pandemic days, mainly because they lost funding, not because they lost audiences. So it's a financial problem that's holding it back. In the UK, certainly mainstream festivals are just uh, fine. I mean, Glastonbury was still sold out, 150,000 people, whatever it is. And, <laughs> and and all the folk festivals I've played this summer, I've played a lot in, in the UK this year, are all doing really well. Sonny, I'm sorry to tell you, in the sense that it's not the same, perhaps, in the States. And it, it as uh, as Murray said, there was a, a certainly a hit during the pandemic and, and after where some venues have closed. But uh, but that was also the same for like a mainstream venue. Not I'm not just talking about folk music now, but it, it we seem to be beyond that. To be honest, you, you just came back. You just came back from a tour of the states. How are you? Well, I did. I did two shows. I I flew last weekend to to Maryland. I know to play just two shows because I had to go over there for something. So I was just there, and they were they were both sold out. But it it was just a hundred people each night. It wasn't a, like a big thing or whatever. But I th I think. I, I hesitate to say this, but I've noticed uh, when I tour in America that the folk audience at the clubs is is a an audience that's getting dare I say it older, and I think there may be a, a natural not because of COVID as such though I'm sure perhaps mm. more mature older folk are a little bit more weary of that now, but I think there is a a bit of a decline perhaps in the the folk scene for for local shows in the states i've noticed i've had that one you know so but i have to be honest with you and saying that yeah you wouldn't actually know that there'd been a pandemic over here in terms of people going to shows now it's just kind of back to where we were i, I wanted to add something also to that i kind of agree with martin about that i've just done a show in new york which was sold out and again it's not huge uh, joe's pub in in in, in manhattan and City Winery in Philadelphia, and I had a full houses there. And I've just played an outdoor festival that was packed. So it it's, just depends on where you are. And I, I think, again, also I agree with Martin, the folk audiences are tending to get, folk music audiences are tending to get an, an older clientele who maybe are more afraid of, of, of COVID and things like, you know, still afraid of COVID, but living on the West Coast, it's a completely different scene. People don't mm -hmm. care. There's so many outdoor venues there as well. You know, a lot of it is outside. So pe people aren't afraid. In Mexico, they're not even thinking about it. So there's, there are lots of people that come out still. And personally, I don't love, you know, performing online. I, I, I can do it, but it's, it's, it's not something that I've, I'm addicted to at all. <laughs> I prefer the live audience. Well, I'm glad to hear what you've all said. It gives me hope. It sounds very good. And I think I have the partial solution, and that is start doing afternoon concerts because a lot of the our audience is older and a lot of people my age or younger, because I'm, I'm ancient, a lot of people don't want to go out at night. And as a matter of fact, we just did a concert, a Phil Oak song night in Boston, and I, they wanted me there. And I said, the only way I'll come is if it's a matinee. And they did. They, they, they listened to my wishes. And we had a huge audience because, it was, and it was mainly seniors. Let's face it. This is where we're at. So think afternoons. <laughs> yeah. It's really good to think about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. As long as it doesn't become mornings, because then forget it. <laughs> or if we have to start worrying about time zones, look out for doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I think Maury's doing incredibly well to still be uh, vital and, and engaged. It's now one in the morning. I must admit I had a, uh, had a sh short nap just before we came on. Oh, well so I thought it'd be a bit rude to fall asleep in the middle of uh, this recording. Oh, we all appreciate you being here. It's right, great to be. Since we have our elders here, and since the name of this show is The Wisdom of the Elders, this is time the time we ask you to impart some wisdom, particularly aimed at younger performers who are coming through. What, what kind of wisdom would you give them? What What's a good thing to do or not do in terms of the, the music world as it is today? It's, it's if I can just get my words out and then I'll listen to all the other wisdoms. I just love being independent and I would really, really encourage young people to, to go that route because the days of big record companies and so on, it's... It, it's not that you shouldn't try, but it's almost like a pipe dream, you know. So encouraging entrepreneurship, I think, is really important with young people. Just go for it. Go for it and believe in yourself and get the people behind you that you know might support you and just follow follow your dream and be authentic. Don't try to be like anybody else. You know, follow your own voice and your own vision and that that's my advice to the young people be strong be proud and be independent Martin? Not, much to add, not much to add to that i was going to say you know uh you know what 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 do you want to say you know what what do you want to what do you want to do and just just be true to your to your uh as Sharon said, your authentic self, and 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 that's where you'll that's where your best song is. Not trying to be somebody else, you know. Yeah, the the best song lies within your own heart and what you want to say and how you feel. And it's so easy to just get sidetracked and well, I want to sound like him or her, or or I want to, you know, write a song like that. But but you know, your best song lies in what you feel most passionate about and uh, try to be authentic. But I, I really feel for young people these days because I had something, I don't know, was it uh, three quarters of a million streams or something last year, which paid $270 or something, you know, and, and, you know, in, in the, there was in the day where I could put a CD out and people would buy it. And that I, I, my audience still want to do that. But for young people who want to go out and play a few gigs to their generation, their generation are not interested in buying anything, you know, that is, um, you know, that you can hold. So I, I it's it's hard. It, it it really hard for young people. So, so that's my thing. Just be true to yourself and and work hard at it. Don't you know? Don't be satisfied. Get better at your instrument. Get better at the craft of songwriting. But don't give up. Keep going. And time will will tell and and show you the way but it i recognize how hard it is right now for for young musicians i'd say my advice to younger people is that you don't particularly in the folk music world you don't have to make a living out of it that it's a, it's it's a it's a common ground the folk music world where people who are full-time professionals working with people who do it as for love and 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 perform and we all we all come together at the folk clubs and folk festivals and because i think the first thing they must do is just keep performing love the music keep performing and and perform with other people L learn to sing along with other people to join other people on stage of all ages connect with with, with fellow musicians and performers, experiment with the music, and as as both Sharon and Martin have said, to be true to yourself, but also to be, um, and I think this is where we possibly started today, not just music, you know, you also have to engage with your community on issues, and from that you will learn so much about life and yourself when you do. That's so important. It's not just the music. It's also how you relate to other human beings, what what big causes you get involved in. And they 
and they will and that 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 will that will assist you as a, as a performer as a musician when you do that I, I am just so impressed i'm telling you we started with the maury moharan from australia and then we went to martin joseph from wales and then sharon katz who was really from originally from south africa now, now residing in mexico what an amazing group you are thank you so much <laughs> for being you. Thank you for the work you do. And Ron Alesco, my co-host here, he has been such a, a crutch for me to lean on because... <laughs> Thank you, Sonny. I, I was so inspired by all three of you, all four of you, including Sonny, by the work you do. And, and you know, as a, as a radio host, to be able to play your music on the air is, uh, is such an honor. And to know what work goes behind that and the activism that the, each of you do it really brings us all together as a community and that's what's going to keep folk music going in whatever form it will be in the future but uh, you give us all hope so thank you all for being with us today and sunny thank you so much for putting this series together and uh i'm looking forward to doing another one with you uh our next one which will keep us a surprise for now but uh, we want to thank the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, NERFA, for helping sponsor this, as well as Folk Music Notebook, the internet radio channel that I operate at uh, folkmusicnotebook.com. And again, Sonny, thank you for this vision and uh, for putting all this together. Thank you, Ron. And so thank long, you. everyone. I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Thanks, thank Ron. Thanks. Thanks, thank you, thanks. Thank you so much to everybody. Thank you all, and we'll see you again next time on Wisdom of the Elders.